Well, this is now our 50th sermon together in the book of Luke. And uh, you can go ahead and laugh. That's fine. I heard a little snicker under your breath. As is fitting, though, for a milestone like this, this morning's text is all about the most important theme in the whole book of Luke. So there is a primary theme that motivated Luke to write, and our text this morning, as is fitting for the 50th sermon in Luke, is on that primary theme. So I would just encourage you, maybe keep your finger in Luke 11 and flip back to Luke chapter 1 so that you can see this for yourself. In Luke chapter 1, Luke begins this letter by outlining for us, giving to us, in no uncertain terms, his purpose for writing. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's purpose in writing is to give his reader, is to give us, even today, certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Chiefly, that we might have certainty about the identity and about the work of Jesus Christ. And now we are 50 sermons into this great book, and my hope would be that in some way, shape, or form, all 50 of these sermons have connected us back to this thesis statement, that every single sermon would somehow prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he saves his people from our sin, just as we have been taught, just as we have heard. And so, here we are in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28, the section that Mackenzie has read for us this morning. Again, if you haven't grabbed your Bible and opened there, let me just encourage you again to, to find that text. We're going to make our way through that text, but let's just acknowledge that there are some strange things in this section of Scripture, right? We can acknowledge that right up front, that's Okay. Maybe as Mackenzie was reading, you were like, this is a really unique section of Scripture. There's some odd things happening here. For example, we have demon being cast out. We have Jesus being called a strange name. We have a strong man being attacked and overpowered by an even stronger man. We have unclean spirits ganging up on someone and taking over residency in their life. I mean, these are... These are strange things, and when we come across things like this in the Bible that seem odd or seem strange or seem bizarre, a good question to ask is this. What's the author's purpose? What's the author's purpose here? The Holy Spirit inspired Luke 
to record these things from Jesus' life. Why? Remember, Luke's purpose is to give us certainty in our faith. Why was the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to write these things? How do these things give us certainty? in our faith. How do these things demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who saves his people from their sin? And we're going to try to answer that question this morning together. The way I want to approach this text is a little bit differently than we normally do. What I want to do is begin by giving the the, kind of the theme of these verses. So I'm going to argue that verses 14 through 28 are driving at one primary theme, one primary premise, and I want to start by giving you that primary theme, and then I want to show you in four different movements how each of those four movements connect to that primary theme. And I'm going to apologize in sackcloth and ashes ahead of time, there's no media on the screen. So other than what you see here, that's it. Right, So uh, I apologize for that. You're going to have to old-fashioned just kind of listen and write it down. Here's the primary thesis that we're going to keep returning to again and again. That is this. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to defeat Satan and bring the kingdom of God to earth. So listen to him and obey him. Jesus is the son of God who has come to defeat Satan and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So listen to him and obey him. Everything in these verses serve to make this primary point that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to defeat Satan and to bring the kingdom of God to earth so we are to listen to him and we are to obey him. As I said, we're going to see how that kind of takes shape through four movements in the text. And I'll just give you those movements right now in case you wanna go ahead and jot those down. First is the action, the action And then the accusation, then the announcement, and then the application. The action, the accusation, the announcement, the application. I know I don't normally alliterate, but just in case you were tempted to think I'm actually not a Baptist, I decided to alliterate this morning, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt I am. First of all, let's start with the action. The action is Jesus casts a demon out of a man. Real simple, verse 14. Now, at, he was casting a demon, now, let me try that again. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. So Luke does not give us lots of detail here, except to say that Jesus was casting a demon out of a man who could not speak. We get the understanding that the, the, the demon was mute, was keeping this man from speaking, because as soon as he's cast out, the man begins to speak, and the people marvel. The people are amazed. That's the action. That leads us now to the accusation. And if you're thinking, wow, we're going to be at done in like five minutes. We're already on point two. Let not your heart be troubled. We will slow down as we make our way through. Secondly, the accusation. 
Those who see the exorcism fail to believe in Jesus. So if you want a subheading there, those who see the exorcism fail to believe in Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. So they see Jesus cast out the demon. They see the man who was formerly mute now speaking. The people marvel, verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. It's interesting that the crowd does not deny that a miracle has happened. They're not crossing their arms and saying, I don't believe it. That didn't really happen. It's just an illusion. It's just just a conspiracy. It was all rigged. They don't say that. They don't deny that the miracle happens. But in their response, they fail to believe, and they're primarily divided into two groups. The first group, the group from verse 16, deny that what they've seen is actually enough evidence to change their heart. They're not satisfied with what they've seen. Their heart motivation is to test Jesus. And with a heart motivation like that, they are never satisfied. This is the, the prove it crowd. It's never pleased that always wants more evidence, that always wants more proof. The ESV study Bible note here is, is helpful. It puts it like this. No sign will overcome an unwillingness to believe. No sign will overcome an unwillingness to believe. Sometimes there's a temptation to think, if if I just see with my eyes a sign, then I will believe. If I just see enough evidence, if I just see something miraculous, it'll change my point of view, it'll change my thinking, I'll see a sign. In the first service, I, I went off my notes, which is never good, and I, I referenced an Ace of Base song from the 90s about seeing a sign and it opening up your eyes. And I realized after, as I talked to people, 90% of the people didn't even get the illustration. So I'm not going to mention the Ace of Base song from the 90s about seeing a sign and it opening up your eyes. But tragically, oftentimes we build our theology like that. If I just see a sign, it'll open up my eyes and I'll finally understand and I'll finally believe. And the Bible says that actually faith works the exact opposite. Seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. They were not satisfied. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1 that one of the reasons many Jews do not believe is they they demand signs instead of putting their trust in Jesus. This is a good reminder that ultimately it is not for a lack of sign that people refuse to believe. Because over and over again, even those who saw the greatest signs, saw Jesus alive and doing miracles and working with power and then saw him die and come back to life, many of those people, if not most of those people, still refuse to believe. That was the first group who failed to believe even though they saw Jesus and saw his miracle. The second group of those who failed to believe actually accused Jesus of working miracles not through the power of God but through the power of Beelzebul, through the power of the demonic. Now, a little history lesson here. Beelzebul was a false god that was worshipped by the Philistines primarily in the city of Ekron. 
And by the time we get to the first century, by the time we get to Jesus' day, his generation, the term Beelzebul had become a nickname essentially for all things demonic, all things under the power and the sway of Satan. So the crowd was attributing the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. Now, before we judge, let's just hit pause for a moment. Let's give these people in the crowd the benefit of, of doubt for a moment or two. Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses gives instructions to the Israelites about how they are to approach a prophet who performs signs and then leads people to worship another god. And could it be that the crowd seeing Jesus exercise this demon and hearing his message about how he is divine, that he is God, could it be that the crowd saw this and heard this and thought Jesus is a false prophet and he is trying to get us to worship a false God? Could it be that the crowd was simply being discerning? And I would argue no for this reason. The problem for this crowd wasn't that they watched and weighed carefully what Jesus said and did by the standard of Scripture. The problem was that they were so blinded by their sin, they refused to turn and trust in Jesus. And specifically here, the problem was that they immediately attributed Jesus' work to the work of Satan because of the hardness of their hearts. And just watch how Jesus dismantles their accusation. Verse 17. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons Cast them out. Therefore, they will be your judges. So Jesus knows the thoughts of the crowd, which just may be an indication that Jesus, in fact, actually is divine, is the Son of God. And then he pulls out this divided house quote from Abraham Lincoln. And, no, wait a minute, (laughs) other way around about a house divided against itself not being able to stand. But what does that exactly mean? Well, Jesus clarifies in verse 18 what he means. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? The point is that when there is a direct conflict of interest, unity goes out the window. Unity falls apart. The house falls. He's telling this crowd, hey, when I cast out a demon, you say that I only do that because I am empowered by a demon. But that doesn't even make sense. Why would the demonic cast out a demon? That's impossible. And even if it were possible to cast out a demon by the power of a demon, what does that imply for others who reportedly cast out demons? Your own prophets. But since you know that they aren't working by demonic powers, then they are your judges, even as you accuse me. They're judging you to be prejudiced against me because we're, we're in your eyes both doing miracles and you say they're of God, but you say I am of Satan. 
So by the time we're here in the first century, as the nation of Israel has progressed, some parts of Judaism had become contaminated with the pseudo-mysticism of the pagan cultures around them. Many of the Jews were believing some things from the Old Testament, but then bringing in all kinds of unhelpful speculation about the spiritual realm. There were things that they borrowed from the mystics, and they were kind of mixing it all together with their Jewish faith. Not, not terribly unlike some today who are obsessed with angels or obsessed with demons or obsessed with praying to bind the enemy or loosen the power of God or obsessed with so-called spiritual warfare. And the Jewish religious leaders generally endorsed these so-called miracle workers. And so Jesus says to them, in effect, if you say, my work is powered by a demon, then think of how that reflects on your own miracle workers. And since it's not true that I cast out demons by the power of a demon, and you rightly know that, I think Jesus is saying, you you rightly know that. Inside, deep down, you, you know that I'm not doing this by the power of demons then the only other explanation is that I cast out demons by the power of God. Which brings us to our third movement, which is the announcement. The announcement is this. Jesus' miracles are a sign of his authenticity. Jesus' miracles are a sign of his authenticity authenticity, and evidence that through him, God's kingdom has come. Let me say that again. And I would just add that Paul also likes run-on sentences. I don't know if you're bothered by that. Jesus' miracles are a sign of his authenticity and evidence that, comma, through him, comma, God's kingdom has come. To put that another way, we could go all the way back to our main point and say that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to defeat Satan and to bring the kingdom of God to earth, so listen to him and obey him. And just look at verse 20. Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Notice the if-then statement in verse 20. If what I do is by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to defeat Satan and bring the kingdom of God to earth. And the miracles he does are evidence of his identity and evidence that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God on earth through the people of God has in fact begun. In fact, the expression that Jesus uses here in verse 20, the the finger of God, which might seem like an odd expression, is the same expression used all the way back in Exodus chapter 8. When God is is performing these signs and wonders in Egypt among the Egyptians that he might bring his people out of bondage in Egypt, the expression that is used is that God is performing these signs by the finger of God. That these signs are coming upon Egypt 
by the finger of God. This is the, the work of Yahweh. And now Jesus uses that very same expression to describe the work that he is now doing. Make no mistake, Jesus is claiming to be God. And he's claiming to be the one in whom Yahweh is working these miracles. These miracles are evidence. When you see them, you see God at work. But these miracles are also the means by which the enemy is being disarmed. Remember, Jesus has come to earth to defeat the enemy. These miracles are the means by which the enemy is being is shown to be powerless. So the strong man in verse 20 represents Satan, represents the demonic powers, and his power, Satan's power is secure until along comes Jesus, the stronger man, the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter three, who crushes Satan's head, who defeats the strong man, who divides his spoil. And friends, this is a picture of what Jesus has come to do. In fact, it's a picture of what Jesus is still doing today. Like through the gospel, the stronger man is rescuing the spoil, rescuing men and women and children from the grasp and power of the strong man, Satan. He is redeeming them, releasing them from slavery to sin that we might have life in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what happens every time we gather, every time the gospel is proclaimed, every time the word of God is open, every time you share and witness with your friends and your neighbors and your classmates, there is power in the word of God. The stronger man is overpowering the strong man. And this was God's plan all along. From the very beginning of time when he created all things and created them wonderfully good. And he created the first man and the first woman and placed them in the garden and said they are very good. And even when our foreparents, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God, chose treason against God, rather than acknowledging and honoring God as God, God did not give up on his rebellious people. But in love, he provided his very own son, Jesus Christ, to come and live and walk on earth. And yes, to teach, and yes, to do miracles, and yes, to fully Obey and fulfill the law of God. And then Jesus willingly chose to die. He chose to take the place of all who believe, dying in our place as the just punishment for our sin because the wages of sin is death. Jesus took our sin upon himself and died on the cross in our place for our sin, but did not stay dead because three days later, God raised him from death to life, overpowering the grave and overpowering death, demonstrating that God's power is stronger, that there's a greater reality even than death. That is the life of Jesus Christ. And therefore, all who turn by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not that he lived or that he died merely, but that he died for my sin in my place. That he is the son of God. That he is my only saving grace. We are not only forgiven our sins, we are adopted into his glorious family. We are made new. 
We are given his precious Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. Another way of describing all of that is that the stronger man is coming and disarming the strong man. He is setting the captives free. He is declaring liberty to those who are oppressed and recovery of sight to the blind. He is declaring the year of the Lord's favor. Which is precisely what Jesus came to do. And precisely what he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection and ascension. So this morning, if you came, and maybe you, you come every week, maybe this is your first time, maybe you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, I would implore you through Scripture that you be reconciled to God on behalf of Jesus Christ. That you would trust in him this morning as the Savior of your life and your sin. As the high king of heaven to whom all your allegiance is due. Who while you were yet a sinner, while I was yet a sinner, he provided his own son to die for us. This brings us to our fourth and final movement in the text, which is the application, which is to believe, listen to, and obey Jesus. Believe, listen to, and obey Jesus. Jesus. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, verses 23 through 28 might all seem really disconnected. You might even wonder why in the world did I lump all those together in one sermon or under one point. Let me try to explain. First of all, I need you to do me a favor because remember, the, the subheadings in your Bible were not added for more than a thousand years after the text of Scripture was written. So just erase those in your mind for a moment. I'm not saying they're bad. They can be helpful but they can sometimes be a distraction. So just erase those in your mind for just a moment and let's see what the message is. Jesus has just announced that his kingdom has come, that he is taking back that which the enemy held. And now he draws a clear line in the sand. Verse 23, if you're not with me, then you're against me. If you're not involved in this kingdom work of gathering in the people of God, then you are scattering the people. And now verses 24 through 26 is where he talks about those who scatter, those who fail to believe, those who reject Jesus and his teaching, those who attribute the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. And his point here is simply that seeing the, work, the miracles that Jesus does is not enough. 
and believing that the miracles happen somehow is not enough. And even having a demon cast out of you is not enough. If you do not turn and trust in Jesus, you will not be saved. You can imagine so many in the crowd, they saw the miracle that Jesus did and they believed, oh, it actually happened. And even perhaps the one in whom the demon was cast out believed a demon was cast out of me, much like the 10 lepers who were cleansed and only nine of them went about their way and never truly acknowledged who Jesus was. Jesus' point is this. It's not enough to just believe that the miracles happen. It's not enough to even have a miracle happen to you if you do not turn and trust in Christ Jesus. If you do not see the reason that these miracles are happening, you still are lost. And the end result can be worse than the first. This theme is is made clear as well in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 records the same teaching. It's a parallel account of these same words of Jesus. And at the end, Matthew includes these words of Jesus when Jesus says, so also it will be with this evil generation. And so after verse 26, Jesus says, so also it will be with this evil generation. And then he continues, the people around Jesus want a sign. They say, hey, we'll believe if you give us enough proof. Just show us some more signs and then we'll believe. And Jesus says to them, the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I will be in the grave for three days. But then he adds, even that sign will not convince you. Like that won't even be enough for you to believe. Again, just being fixed on the outside, just cleaning up your act, just being a moral person, just trying to be a nice guy or a nice lady, or just trying to follow the moral teachings of Jesus, or just attending church, or just reading the Bible, or just praying before meals, will not ultimately save. It may clean you up for a little while, but in the end, it's unsustainable, and salvation is unattainable, because there's no new resident in your heart. There's no new allegiance in your life. The Holy Spirit is not there. It's simply moral, ethical, behavioral modification at best. It could also be in verses 24 through 26 that Jesus is challenging the work of the Jewish religious leaders. We don't know for sure, but he could be pointing out that all the Jewish religious leaders were doing was trying to clean up the cup on the outside, which is an illustration Jesus uses. You clean the outside, but inside the cup is still full of ugliness. There's no real lasting life change because there's not a new kingdom allegiance. The Holy Spirit is not there. D.A. Carson writes that by contrast, Jesus' work directly challenges Satan's work and replaces Satan's kingdom with the kingdom of God. There's an internal change. There's a new resident. There's a new kingdom identity. And so after hearing this, the natural question is, what must we do? 
How can we enter the kingdom of God? How can we assure that the enemy's kingdom is replaced with God's kingdom in our hearts? And Jesus gives us the answer in verse 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus is wrapping up his teaching. He's kind of right in the middle of teaching about a new identity, about a new allegiance, about the work of the Holy Spirit ultimately coming and taking up residence in our hearts. That simply seeing the signs, simply hearing the teaching, simply acknowledging this is pretty great is not enough to transform. It's not enough to save. And as he's saying this, a woman calls out in the crowd, likely trying to compliment him, but says to him in verse 27, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This is an odd way of complimenting Jesus and his mom, and it's foreign to us today, maybe even a little uncomfortable, but it was not foreign to the first century's way of speaking. We might say today something like this, your mom is so blessed to have a child like you. But Jesus redirects this compliment. In fact, this compliment follows in the same stream. Jesus' whole point is don't just see the external signs and think, wow, this is really nice. This is some great teaching. We want to come back for more of this. Or, man, a miracle. This is exciting. Like, give us another sign. Give us some, like, give me some popcorn. Like, let's sit down. Let's watch. What else is he going to do? No, unless you truly understand my identity, unless you truly hear and believe and obey, then there's been no change. And a woman calls out and says, oh, this is really nice. Aren't you a great teacher? Your mom must be so proud. And Jesus immediately redirects that to where it needs to go. And he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Which is very similar to what Jesus said all the way back in Luke chapter 8. Remember Jesus is teaching and ministering and his mom and his siblings come. And they're trying to get in and hear him. But it's, it's too packed, right? Nobody can get up close. He gets word, hey, your family's outside waiting. They, they can't find a parking spot. They can't get in. Jesus said, I'll tell you who my true family is. My true family are those who hear the word and do it. Now, because words have meaning, because sometimes the words we use have a different meaning from region to region and person to person and age to age, it's important for us to know that the word hear in verse 28 is, means more than just having things go into our ears or having our eyes scan across words of the Bible. In the Bible, hearing the word of God and doing it means that you hear and you listen in such a way that you believe and that your belief is then demonstrated by what you do, that believing is demonstrated by doing. Doing doesn't create belief, doing isn't equal somehow to belief or interchangeable, but believing then leads to doing. And just as faith without works is dead, so too the kingdom family of God is only comprised of those who hear the message of scripture and then obey what they hear. Not obedience, again, to merit or earn a place in God's kingdom, but obedience because we truly believe what we've heard. 
we're embracing what we've heard. In fact, to a first century Jewish culture, to hear something and then not actually live according to what you hear, they would question whether you actually even heard it right, and they would certainly say you don't actually believe it. Different than our kind of culture, which sometimes tries to disconnect that, like, oh, I believe this, but I don't have to actually live in light of that. Jesus is saying, no, hearing and believing then leads to obedience, leads to living, which is the fruit of true repentance. To repent means to change our thinking. It means a change of mind, to change what we know to be true. Specifically, when we speak of repenting and believing the gospel, we are changing our minds. We are repenting of sin, and the primary sin that we are repenting of is the sin of unbelief. It's failing to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who truly died on the cross for the sin of all who believe and trusting in him alone. So when we repent, we are rightly now believing that Jesus is the Son of God who died, was buried, and did rise from the grave for the sin of all who believe. Therefore, if we say we have a changed thinking, and yet our desires and our affections and our actions and our doing never changes, then we obviously haven't had a change in our thinking. Like We may believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin, but if our thinking hasn't changed to believe that it was our sin for which Jesus died, that we rightly deserve punishment, but God through Christ has given us pardon and adoption, then we haven't truly changed in our thinking. A changed thinking is evidenced downstream by changed doing. Maybe not significantly at first, maybe even imperceptibly at first, but over time, a changed mind, changed thinking, a changed heart leads to a changed life. In fact, all of this is summed up with a phrase that Jesus uses here to hear the word of God and keep it. He's not referring to just mere external keeping the word of God. That would go against everything that he has just said. He's speaking about true repentance about true belief and the actions and the obedience that flow out of actually, ah, I see who Jesus actually is, which now has implications for who I am, has implications for what I can give my life to joyously because of who he is and what he's done. This brings us all back again to our thesis statement that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to defeat Satan and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So listen to him and obey him. Like Our application this morning is Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus has come to defeat Satan and he has come to bring the kingdom of God to earth, that we might listen to him and that we might obey him. And so our response this morning, if you are not a believer, is to, is to repent, is to acknowledge, I am a sinner. Jesus is a great savior. In fact, the only salvation for my sin. This morning, I, I turn and I trust in him. I believe in him. 
And if you have questions about that, if you have comments about that, if you want someone to pray with you about that, we would lo- there'll be folks at the front, we would love to talk to you afterwards. But if you're thinking, okay, I, that's my story. I am repented. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm believing in Jesus Christ. What's the application for me? The application for you and the application for me is that we would be reminded evermore of the greatness and the glory of God who while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God that while we were enemies with God and hostile to him, that he would provide Jesus Christ not merely to come as a miracle worker, but that he would provide Jesus Christ as the stronger man who has come and who has overcome the strong man and who has set the captives free, who has given us salvation that we did not merit on our own, that we might be adopted and made his own, that we might be grafted into his glorious family, that we might live here and in all of eternity to declare his praise, that we might see the bigness and the glory and the greatness and the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God ever more vividly as a result of this text this morning. This is our story, friends. This is our song. Praising our Savior all the day long. Let's pray together.